Hello everybody, I am Lucia Matuonto and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast, a talk show where my guests and I talk about relatable everyday situations, books, and the environment we live in. Remember to subscribe and follow the podcast on social media so you can be notified when a new episode is available. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to the Relatable Voice podcast. On today's road trip, we are heading to New Orleans to talk with Galen Hare. Galen is a musician, lawyer, book author, and warrior. Galen litigated for domestic violence victims and also worked hard to help Hurricane Katrina's victims. So you are very welcome, Galen, to the RV. Thank you for having me, Lucia. Of course. So Galen, you told me that you have a flying carpet in your Arctic. So what is the story behind it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I think every child, and I think it's really important, has aspirations. And I think the best thing we can do as humans is to support those. And even though, by and large, I think our childhood aspirations don't necessarily lead to a career, a long-term future, it fundamentally shapes who we are. So I saw David Copperfield on TV when I was a kid. And I just wanted to be a magician and I was obsessed with it. I mean, anytime I earned money through allowance chores, whatever, I would go to the flea market and buy magic tricks. I spent all my money on magic tricks. Right. And levitation was like this thing that fascinated me. Right. It's like, how do they do it? And I started, so I started to learn more and more about magic, started to learn about how illusions work. And my big project when I was in, I think junior high or, early high school, and it took a lot of help, was to create a magic carpet that would levitate. So it I, I don't want to give away exactly how that works, but it took a lot of work. And um, I've kept it to this day. It's so much fun to have, right? And it, it's a great thing to have. I don't, I'm not weird. I don't start busting out magic tricks in the middle of dinner, right? But it's a great thing to have. It's a part of my past. I don't do it anymore. But when I was a child and through junior high and even high school, I was so amazed by how illusions work and how magicians create these illusions. And it's so interesting because it's like half art and it's half science. Right. And I think I was always drawn to that for that exact reason. So, yeah, if you ever come by my house um, in my attic, you can sit on a magic carpet and I will make you levitate and I can show you a video and it'll you'll see that you're levitating. Wow, that's amazing. I was going to ask you, were you able to levitate? <laughs> well, hold on. So, you know, again, I don't want to give it away, but the the art of the art of being a magician, right, is not not being able to necessarily do what you see. It's to be able to do things you don't see. So every one of those constructions, there's a trick behind it. Some people call it tricks, but it's really just science, right? So for instance, you know, one that's very easy to give away is when I was younger and, and you still see this, you'll see magicians where like doves fly out of a hat or something like that, right? Mm -hmm. So fun fact, doves are really easy to hypnotize. You can do that. Anyone can do that. They are super sweet. 
they're the sweetest birds ever. And if you do just the right things to them, they will go to sleep and they will stay asleep until you move them and wake them up. So you could have this kind of little hidden compartment in a hat or anything, and you could hypnotize them before a show and they would sleep still until it was time to open that hat or open that compartment. And then of course that would startle them and they'd fly away. Right. Um, doves were amazing. So growing up, we had like 30 or 40 doves and they're like the sweetest birds. They follow you around the house, you know, and you could like sprinkle food and stuff. They were so sweet, but super easy to hypnotize. So every single magic trick you see, whether it's on TV, a video, whatever, there's some kind of science behind it, which is just so cool. And I think that's what I was drawn to. So no, I cannot actually make someone levitate, but you would have the feeling that you're levitating and visually you certainly would be levitating. Gotcha. Here where I live, there are many doves. Tomorrow I'll try to hypnotize one of them. <laughs> it's very easy and they're very sweet. You are originally from Texas, but lived several years in Louisiana and are very fond of it. So what are the things you like the most there? So, you know, I never envisioned myself going from Texas to Louisiana. It just wasn't something I'd ever thought of, but I was amazed because when I got to Louisiana, it was kind of a, a hard place to live because I got here right after Hurricane Katrina. So the state itself was still amazing, fantastic. However, the city had a lot of issues, right? As you would imagine, after one of the larger storms in our history. But what I think kept me in the city and kept me in the state, it was a few things. Obviously, the food is fantastic. And in Louisiana, they just have a higher appreciation for good food than most of the country. I think there's some great places to eat in the United States. Obviously, New York's one of them and things like that. But in Louisiana, they love to eat. There's an entire food culture there, right? And so I think I loved that. And it didn't take long after Katrina for new exciting restaurants to start opening. But it's the people, right? It's the people. And the people are nice. They're welcoming. They're open. They're sweet. They're very international. They're from all over the world. And they're very comfortable going other places. And then the final thing for me is what we call being a sportsman, right? So the ability to just go boat, go fish, go hunt, do whatever it is that involves being outdoors. Louisiana is just a fantastic place for that as well. So, you know, look, the downside to living in that state is we get a bunch of hurricanes and sometimes it gets very hot, but the the benefits are definitely, definitely worth the effort. Mm -hmm. I've been to New Orleans before Katrina. I love the energy of people and the bars and this people playing on the streets are fantastic. I understand why you love New Orleans and of course, Louisiana. And Galen, you went from music school and have a major in voice. So what is your favorite music style? So I went to school for opera that's by far my favorite it wasn't necessarily planned that way music school was more of a vehicle to get an education i'm a very staunch believer in kind of setting your goals figuring out what you want and finding a vehicle to get there even if it's not the most obvious 
So for me, because we didn't have really resources in my family growing up, we, we were very, very poor and, and there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's, it, it makes you tougher, but college was kind of a pipe dream. I'm the first person from my family, my entire family to have even gone to college, much less graduate. Right. So how do you go to college if you know at the beginning, you don't have money to go to college. Right. So for me, I had been told at least that I had this ability to sing. I was being told by the music teachers at my high school that I had an ability to sing and I figured out, and this is great advice for any parent sitting there with a young, you know, high school age boy that, and they're worried about college. It turns out if you have an ability to sing, colleges will open for you. And in fact, will some of them will pay you to go, not just give you a scholarship. They will pay you to go because they have all these talented women, right? All these talented women that are competing and trying to pay to go to school and they need men to balance that out so they can put on their productions, round out their choirs, do all the things that need to happen. So for me, I, I think I really was not committed to music initially. I became committed as time went on. But for me, it was really an opportunity to go to school, get a college education and accomplish that. And then I just kind of fell in love with it. I, I don't even think I knew what I was doing when I showed up. I had never done anything more than be in a high school choir, right? And perform a couple a couple of songs a month, right? But I, I really did enjoy it by the time I got there. It takes a lot of discipline. People don't realize that, right? Um, we love to joke about musicians and kind of how lazy they are and things like that. But it ended up being the best thing I could have done to kind of prepare me for my later role in life, because as a as a musician, as a music student or a professional musician, one of the things you have to do is put yourself in a room alone for hours a day and judge yourself and make yourself better. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It involves being vulnerable with yourself. It involves being honest with yourself, right? You have to judge yourself and be hard on yourself without being too hard on yourself. You have to keep your mental state up, even though you are actively judging yourself. It's very difficult and you're alone, right? So you have to develop motivation, even though there's nothing motivating you because you're just in a room alone. So I have to say the self-discipline that you must develop, must, is so neat and so worth it. And I really enjoyed it. So then you went from music to law school, which is quite different. So can you tell us a little bit about your journey? So going, I never went, I never intended to go from music school to law school. That wasn't the plan. I don't know what the plan was. Was I going to go to grad school for music? Was I just going to work? I have no idea. But as I was kind of winding down my music education and starting to contemplate what I was going to do. And honestly, everything was on the table as far as I was concerned. I don't think I had a passion at that point. I enjoyed music school. I was also willing to leave that world behind. It's not easy to audition for a job, right? And never know where your next job is coming from. And your average job only lasts a month, right? So, so that's not an easy lifestyle. I had a really cool part-time job while I was in school that wasn't a career um, doing overnight room service. I could have kept doing that and making good money and 
you know, I think in, in my head, I was like, well, maybe I want to go the hotel route and maybe work my way up to being a manager. Also something I could have done, but then hurricane Katrina hit new Orleans and that was it. I was done. I, I felt like I had to get there. I had to be there. I had to help. So I did that. And then everything kind of, I, I always laugh because people like to talk about the decisions they made. And I honestly think after I made the decision to go to new Orleans for the next several years, every decision just kind of happened to me instead of from me. So I got there and then I was surrounded by lawyers and law students who wanted to make a change. I saw this need. So then I went to law school. Right. And then I got to law school and I'm running this nonprofit and I'd see a need. So I just kind of do the next thing. And for the next several years, while I was getting a law school education, I was really just focused on what the people of New Orleans needed post Katrina and trying to find ways to help. I just wanted to make a difference. It's all that drove me from the time I got there. And I had not like traditionally been this super altruistic person. Like, I think I was nice. And I think I was a good human, but like when I was in music school, no one was like, oh, and he does a ton of volunteer work. I don't think I did volunteer work when I was in music school, but I just saw the TV. I saw people suffering and I was like, it's time I'm going to go. So had no skill set. I like gutted houses initially. Right. I got to law school and it was insane going from like homework being memorizing a song, right. To homework you know, someone was like, oh, you read a lot in law school. And I was like, oh, yeah, like what, 10, 20 pages a night? Like that's exhausting. No, a few hundred pages a night, right? You go buy your books. They're like, you, you need like four people to carry your books, right? And you're like, that's so cool. They, um, they sell you all your books for all three years at once. No, no, that's a semester. You know, it's so it was it was a hard transition. But I believe that if you decide ultimately that you're going to do something, you just don't quit. So I hung in there for three years and at some point they decided it was worth giving me a law degree or they just wanted me out the door so badly that they gave it to me anyway. Oh, that's wonderful. And you seem to be very passionate about civic activism and inspired by helping others. What are the things you learned and experienced while helping the victims of Hurricane Katrina? Learned a lot, um, learned almost nothing that I knew before, right? So being on the ground after a disaster, any disaster, you learn a lot about human behavior and human thinking. You see some positive things and some negative things. And, but even the negative things are kind of inherently positive once you realize where it's coming from, right? We all hear about this fight or flight and you really get to see people in their truest form when they are coping with losing everything that they have. And sometimes also, such as the case in Katrina, coping with a broken system, a broken insurance system, a broken government system, nothing that they had hoped would be there to help them was there. So you really get to see people in their purest form. And that teaches you a handful of things. It teaches you, first of all, how to just love people. Um, that sounds hokey, but it's so important. Um, what people really want other than for the disaster never to have happened, what they really want is love. They want to know that they're cared for. They want to know they're loved and it brings it out naturally. And the other thing I learned and it took a lot longer is that every single problem has more than one solution. 
And that single realization, I think, is what would later cause me to go off, open my own business and, and kind of drive my business that way. And then, you know, as a, as a happy side effect to that, the other thing I learned starting that nonprofit and stuff is that people are more fulfilled when they're helping others, as long as that's actually their motivation. After that, you started your own firm, which is a preeminent policyholder law firm. So what prompted you to start this company? So a few things. So obviously after Katrina, I felt very strongly about caring for people that had been the victims of disasters. But something else happened, which is that I watched all these lawyers after Hurricane Katrina pop in, many of which had no idea what they were doing, but they saw it as a chance to make a quick buck. And then I kind of moved on with my life and my career. I went and did domestic violence advocacy. I even did some defense work. And another disaster would happen here or there or anywhere. And I would see a bunch of lawyers that would jump in and not know what they were doing, but use it as an opportunity to make a quick buck. Right. And then I got this eye into this entire storm restoration world, which basically by and large had contractors who I think had their hearts in the right place. They obviously were money and profit driven, which is okay. And they had public adjusters who I, by and large, I think their hearts were in the right place. And then they had all of these lawyers who were just trying to get the business, but weren't really focused on the policyholder. It just wasn't the purpose of the business. So I thought to myself, well, hmm, no one knows me in this space. I'm no one as far as these people are concerned, but there's a hole in the market. There's a hole in the market of a firm that will actually care for policyholders. So, so funny, right? Because you step into that market immediately. I'm like public enemy number one, right? Amongst the law firms. And we start very, very small, just a handful of us. And you fast forward in just like a couple of years, we're one of like the three or four largest policyholder firms of the country. And it was so easy because of what I learned with Katrina, right? We show our policyholders love, we tell them we care about them, and we make sure we know what we're talking about. And anytime you can find a hole in the market like that, it doesn't matter what industry you're in. If the hole in the market is caring about the customers, then you have a recipe for success. And frankly, shame on the rest of the market for not tapping into that earlier. So you started something from the scratch and you became very very successful people say like what's the recipe to success i don't know but what i do know is this if you have a mission and your mission is clear and then every single decision you make has to either further your mission or help something else further your mission and never harm your mission it's very, very simple to stay on target. So for instance, our mission is to get people back in their homes and help them recover after a loss, right? So every decision that this law firm makes, every decision, it either has to help our customers get back in their homes faster, or it has to make something easier for our staff so they can help customers get back in their home faster, right? Right. Those are the only two decisions that are acceptable in this office. 
We don't make a decision that might slow down the process. We don't make a decision that might slow something else down that as a result will slow down the process. And we don't make decisions for fun. We only make decisions that help. And do we lose out on opportunities? Maybe. But as a direct result, we help people and then people know about it so they continue to come back to us. And your work is very much based on helping people. I'm sure that gives you more higher motivation to work hard. When, look, when I was in school, when I was doing defense work, I had the same life that every lawyer has. And you hear lawyers complain all the time about how stressed they are. But as our firm gets bigger, as our firm gets more successful, my relative stress level probably goes up, but my sleep quality also goes up, right? You know, the thing I'm most proud of and the thing that lets me sleep at night is while we've been having this conversation, I know this because there is a dashboard to my right that is always running. While we have been having this conversation, we have settled six insurance claims right now while we've been having this conversation that will lead to people getting back in their home. Sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less, but in this short conversation, I get to know that six families will go back into their homes. So you, you have to sleep well at night when that happens. You have to be a happier person when that happens. Absolutely. Galen, you are also a book author. Why did you decide to start writing? It started when you were a kid. Yeah, I kind of decided to start now. So I think I did like writing as a child. I, I, my father, interestingly enough, was an author. He had written a few books. I never really took an interest in it. His books were all fiction by and large. But what really happened was a few years back as I was kind of starting the firm, I thought to myself, okay, I'm answering a lot of the same questions over and over and over again. And a lot of the people I'm talking to are not really good fits for clients for us because it's very early in the process. They really just need advice. So I did a bunch of videos and I put them up on like YouTube and stuff. Hey, here's what you need to know about this. And then I was kind of watching the videos and it's like, there's got to be something more here. And then someone, someone said it to me. It finally helped. Right. I got a call from someone right after a major disaster and there was no electricity which didn't occur to me. They had like probably charged their phone in their car just to call me. Right. And they asked me a question. I said, Oh yeah, go to YouTube. I did an entire video on this. It'll lay the whole thing out. And she laughed and said, well, yeah, I can't, I don't have internet. I can't get on the video. What can you tell me? So I answered all their questions. And that night I was like, okay, I am writing a book about if you are an average consumer trying to handle your insurance claim, who is everyone? What do you need to know? All the same questions I always got. I'm going to write this book. And then every time there's a disaster, I'm going to dump physical copies of this book wherever it is. And I'm going to make sure, you know, I think there, I think the book's like what, 10, 15 bucks on Amazon. But every time there's a disaster, we drop it to like a, a penny, right? Just to get it out there. Amazon hates that by the way. So strongly recommend not doing it if you are trying to make money on Amazon because they will ban you. Um, but, but, you know, every time there's a disaster, we drop the price to like a penny so people can get it. You can download it for free from our website. 
and the whole goal. So I never really wanted to write a book. What I wanted to do was get this information in people's hands quickly and efficiently. And it occurred to me that I was being super, you know, I don't want to say inconsiderate, but I certainly wasn't being insightful because I was expecting people to consume this media in the way that you or I consume media when there's nothing wrong, but something is wrong. So they need to consume that media in a different way. So that's, that's 100% how the book came to be. Yeah. And can you tell us the name of this book? <laughs> It's called Picking Up the Pieces. And what it does, what it basically does is goes through for any consumer, all the different steps and all the different people that you're going to encounter during an insurance claim. It's going to tell you kind of what you need to look out for, things like that, what, who you might be able to trust, who you might not be able to trust, and really give you the tools you need to properly negotiate your claim. It's not a pitch. It's not a sale. You know, I, I don't even know, depending on the edition, sometimes my contact info is in there and sometimes it's not. Um, but, you know, it's really there for you just, and, and I think everyone should have one, even if they haven't, they're not currently going through a claim because you kind of want it when you are going through a claim, but you can download it for free off the website. That's not a secret. So, you know, don't pay me for it. I don't, I don't want you, I don't want to make money on the book, but, um, But, you know, it's really designed to just kind of be a little handbook for you to have. So if you ever go through a claim, you've got something that you can look at. Mm -hmm. So please give us your website. It's www.insuranceclaimhq.com. So one claim and HQ like headquarters, insuranceclaimhq.com. Galen, would you like to leave a message to our listeners? Sure thing. So I think... At the end of the day, the most important thing we can do for each other is to clearly define our purpose, clearly define our mission, and never give up. And I think today, in today's world, everything gets so political, everything gets so divisive that just do not forget the power of looking someone in the eyes, telling them you appreciate them, and asking them how they are, not how you're doing not how's business, not how's life, how are you? And if you do that, and it's what I've done over the last few years, your relationships will blossom and you will be in a happier place than you've ever been. Absolutely. And Galen, do you have social media? I have all the social medias. Um, you can reach us. Insurance Claim HQ is usually the handle for pretty much everything. Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, Facebook. Also, you can find me personally if you want to chat offline. So you can you can reach me on all the same social media channels. And, uh, you know, we're available 24-7 if you need to talk. We're here for you. Wonderful. So, Gailey, when you publish your new book, please come back. I'll be happy to go back to New Orleans. I remember I went to Pat O'Brien's and I had some drinks there <laughs> we'll do a hurricane yeah it's a the hurricane is the drink at Pato's. okay yes that would be great thank you so much for having me lucia is amazing thank you thank you very much if you enjoyed this episode be sure to subscribe so you'll be notified when the next one is posted please Rate this podcast and share it with your friends. Thank you for listening. And remember, relationships don't exist. Relating does. 
until next time.